Welcome back. It's great to see you again. This is MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top stories in regulatory affairs with the help of our team of reporters around the globe. My name is James Paniki from MLEX's Asia Pacific team, and we've got a strong lineup of stories for you today. In the second part of the podcast, we'll stray a little from our usual policy beats to touch on the European Union's attempts to standardise charges for mobile and other devices. That's right, if you have a drawer full of charges for old phones that have long given up the ghost, and if you often wonder why it is that all mobile device makers don't use the same connections for their charges, this may be one for you. Spoiler alert though, the EU legislation is facing significant pushback, especially from Apple. Nicholas Wallace will join us in just under 10 minutes from now. First up, though, to Silicon Valley, where Google's announcement that it will gradually change the access to personal data available to apps on its Android platform has got people talking. And sure, any company wanting to empower consumers to have a greater say on how their data are used will no doubt receive praise from some quarters. But there's more to this move than meets the eye, especially in the light of a similar yet different move by Apple in relation to its own App Store. Mike Swift is MLEX's global digital risk correspondent and he joins us now from our offices in San Francisco. And Mike, firstly, what is Google doing with what is being called privacy sandbox on Android and why is it doing it? So essentially they're saying that the old way of, of um, collecting people's personal information and using that to target advertising is going to have to change. That They've already done this on the Chrome browser for, for desktop in saying that they're going to do away with tracking cookies. And now what they're doing on Android is uh, doing away with something called the advertising ID, which is a unique code that um, any app that runs on the Android platform can use so they know it's still you know Mike Swift or James Panicki, you know, no matter what app we're using. So um, that um, over time is going to go away, that, that unique ID. And um, Google is going to invent some new technology uh, that will be less privacy invasive, but will still allow apps to target ads. So that'll be interesting to see how that works. So how is Google's approach different from Apple's app tracking transparency or one word initiative? So um, Google is really um, hoping to have their cake and eat it too here. They are hoping to... Um, still be able to target ads and to allow app developers to target ads and to collect data while still keeping people's privacy. Apple essentially took a much more authoritarian approach and basically said, um, we are going to uh, require every app on the iOS platform that does allows third-party tracking to, we're going to force them to, to let users opt out of that. And Google is taking a much more um, collaborative approach. They're allowing uh, some of the big app developers to sort of sneak under the, look at under the hood from the beginning. Even though they haven't fully invented this technology, they're giving them previews of how it's going to work. So um, it's a, a much less um, sort of aggressive and authoritarian approach, I guess you'd say, uh, from the point of view of app developers. Mm -hmm. So if Google is really trying to give people more privacy, why would it face regulatory or legal risk in doing so? I mean, why wouldn't regulators be jumping with joy 
at that prospect? Well, some regulators may be jumping with joy. Uh, I'm sure regulators that are concerned with privacy are, th- are thrilled with this. But the thing is that Google and Apple essentially totally control the mobile app ecosystem between the two of them. So they have tremendous power. And Google has to be incredibly careful that it doesn't do anything to uh, favor its own services or apps at the cost of um, apps that, in a sense, it's competitors. Um, Unlike Apple, Google is really an advertising company. So they have incentive to be make nice with other apps that are in the ad business, um, but at the same time they are competitors. So it's it's a very um, very sort of uh, fraught uh, position they're in. They really have to walk a tightrope here between not uh, asserting their power too much, but also um, improving privacy and changing things. I mean, what they're talking about here is not a minor tweak. It's it's a wholesale overhaul of how um, data is collected in the mobile ecosystem. So it's something that is really a risky move for them, but they really had no choice but to do this. Okay, well, let's talk about the winners and the losers. Who will be hurt the most and who will be helped the most by Privacy Sandbox for Android? Sure. So, I mean, the obvious uh, victim here is, is Facebook or Meta platforms, if you prefer, Meta has already said that it's the, that Apple's changes are going to cost it $10 billion in revenue this year. We don't know whether uh, the costs will be the same uh, for uh, as a result of Google's changes, but it, it was interesting because um, when Google announced this uh, last week, um, they basically um, presented a long list of big developers who said, hey, this sounds great. We're, 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 we're anxious to work with Google. And that list included um, Snapchat, included uh, Activision Blizzard, which is a very large video games company. It included Rovio, which does a whole bunch of uh, kids' apps like Angry Birds. But one app developer that wasn't there was Facebook. So um, we have to assume that they're probably not very happy about this. In terms of who the winners are going to be, um, the hope would be it would be consumers, that you know we would get a lot more uh, visibility and you know visibility and control uh, over the use of our data, but uh, that remains to be seen, uh, depending on what Google actually does. Now, Mike, you mentioned in passing app developers. Tell me something more about how they reacted to the news. Yeah, so I, I sort of got ahead of myself a little bit here. I, I mean, I, what the, the reactions that we saw were by companies that um, Google actually brought in and gave a sneak preview to. Um, even though it's very early days in um, the development of this technology, um, I'm told from folks within Google that um, uh, these companies, Activision, Blizzard, Rovio, um, Snap, DoorDash, uh, were all on the list, were kind of brought in and sort of showed the early iterations of this new technology, which we don't know what it is yet. Uh, n- nobody else seems to really know what it is yet. And they're saying, hey, uh, this looks great. Uh, you know, if you look at sort of these the statements, they were made by high-ranking uh, executives like the CEO of Rovio. And, but you can also see they're, they're a little bit, um, uh, they obviously were tweaked by lawyers and the marketing department. <laughs> so so um, there's sort of a, care, uh, there's careful applause, I guess you would be a good way to put it. And so I think there's a there's um, certainly some wariness on their part 
but um, Google's promise is that they're going to go slow. This will be a process that will take at least two years and that developers will come along for the ride. It won't be like Apple where they basically just imposed it, their Apple solution, because Apple knows best. And um, so we'll see how that works. It could work or it could get really messy. We'll see. Okay, so let's bring it back to consumers. When do Android users get to pull out their uh, bucket and spade and start playing in the privacy sandbox? That's very, uh, very fuzzy uh, view of that. Uh, Google in its blog said it will be a multi-year process. Uh, they said it'd be at least two years, uh, probably going to be longer. I think one thing we could, we could um, assume is that this will phase in. There'll be... Um, it won't all happen at once where they'll turn on a switch. There will be a phase-in period, but you know it's going to be at least probably two years before uh, we see this, this happen. What we could see before then is if um, things do get messy and um, app developers don't like what Google's doing, we could see lot litigation or regulation that might slow this whole process down. Um, you can bet that um, Google is also giving previews to regulators such as the, the United States Federal Trade Commission, the ACCC in Australia, I would think, the EU. They're going to um, try to share as much information as they can before they, they uh, end up in the hands, this ends up in the hands of consumers. So uh, I guess the answer is we'll see. <laughs> yes, indeed. Mike, great talking as always. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, James. Mike Swift is MLEX's global digital risk correspondent, and he was speaking to us from San Francisco. And his analysis of this issue is ready for you to print, read, underline, and quote to friends and loved ones. It contains a reference to Google having to navigate the Scylla and Charybdis of privacy and antitrust scrutiny. So there's one there for the fans of Greek mythology as well. Our website is where you'll find it, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for the very latest from our crack team of reporters around the world. That's also where you'll find our archive of podcasts, and there's plenty there for you to listen to. And, of course, you can subscribe to this very podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. James Paniki with you. Thank you for your company. Well, may you ask why it is that you're still holding on to three or four charges belonging maybe to your old work phone that you gave back years ago. Why do you still have them? Well, you never know, right? Sure, you may also be environmentally conscious and not want to add to the massive electronic waste already out there in our landfill. Well, the EU is coming to the rescue, with the European Parliament now considering whether to toughen plans to standardise charges for consumer devices. It's a path that may well pit EU lawmakers against electronics makers. Nicholas Wallace is an MLEX reporter based in Brussels. He covers data privacy and security under normal circumstances, and he's making his podcast debut with us today, and his life will never be the same. Nicholas, um, welcome. First up, tell me something about the Common Charger proposal and where it came from. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. Uh, the Common Charger proposal is a it's a draft law proposed by the European Commission, which is the executive arm of the EU. Uh, They drafted this last year. What they want is a regulation that would force 
manufacturers of a few uh, portable devices, smartphones, tablets, cameras, headphones, speakers and handheld video game consoles to fit all of these devices with USB-C chargers. Now, that in practice basically means Apple can't have lightning connectors anymore because most new devices coming on the market are already using USB-C anyway. The origins of this proposal go back to a voluntary agreement, what's, what's known as a Memorandum of Understanding, that the Commission signed with many manufacturers uh, back in 2009. That agreement was to install USB micro-B chargers. There's something your, your, your listeners are probably a bit more familiar with. It's those, those annoying little fiddly ones that you know, you'll have on pretty much any chargeable device that's more than a couple of years old. Um, you know, USB-C is basically the successor to that. It's easier to use. You know, it, it's, it's symmetrical, so it doesn't matter which way around you plug it in. It delivers more power. It transfers data faster. So the, the market's moving this way anyway, but this is the standard that the commission wants manufacturers to use. Okay, so why is the European Commission doing this and why is it doing it now? Well, let's start with why now. Uh, as I said, I, I think this is the way the market is moving anyway. You know, USB-C is still relatively new. If you know, listeners who are not, you know, maybe not technophiles, not replacing their devices every year, some of them probably haven't seen it yet. It's, it's only fairly new devices that carry it. But they've been pushing for a common charger for a while. So now is a good time if, if the commission wants to set standards without putting too many noses out of joint. It's a good time to pick USPC. Now, why they're doing this, they would say that they want to reduce electric waste. The, the commission says that this regulation will cut about a thousand metric tons of electric waste per year. Electric waste basically being charges and cables getting thrown away. So that's the central justification. I, I'm not entirely convinced by that argument. There isn't going to be some kind of Fahrenheit 451 style purge of old charges. If you've got old USB-C, sorry, if you've got old USB micro or, or, or Apple Lightning devices around your house that are still in working order, you're still going to have those. You're still going to want to charge them. And you know you will replace them as they get old over time, which is what you would have done anyway. And of course, USB-C, it's not going to be with us forever. There will be other standards in the future, especially as we move towards wireless charging. Um, I could be wrong, but um, anyway, that's the commission justification. I, I suspect that this probably has more to do with being popular, which is not something the EU gets many opportunities to do. Um, they don't get many opportunities to pass laws that ordinary citizens are even going to notice, let alone like. So I think this is of a piece with um, another regulation that the EU is well known for, at least in Europe, is the roaming charges regulation. The EU has abolished surcharges for using your mobile phone in different EU countries. That's obviously very popular with consumers. I suspect this will be too because it's very convenient to have one plug that you can use to charge all your devices. I think one other thing I should probably mention just to avoid confusing anybody, this regulation is only about the, the, the plug on the device itself. So this is not a, the, the EU is not proposing to regulate 
you know, whether you plug this into the wall or into a computer or into a, a cigarette lighter in your car, that, that's, that's out, out of scope of this regulation. This is simply what kind of plug goes into the device that you're charging. Yeah, a rare moment of popularity for the European Commission when it comes to policy that doesn't happen very often, so let's let them enjoy their, their moment. But how has industry taken these proposals? Has there been any pushback? There has, and mostly from Apple. Obviously, it's, if, you're a, if you're a company that's using USB-C anyway, this is not a big shock, although... Uh, the argument that Apple is making um, isn't particular to their business model. Obviously, they want to preserve their lightning connectors, but you know, they argue that it's good to have some competing standards for the sake of innovation because th- these are not just plugs. These, the, these different connectors have different capabilities the, in terms of how much power they can deliver, in terms of how much data they can transfer, um, you know, in, t- in terms of ease of use. And what Apple's saying is that if the type of connector that manufacturers have to use is determined by the EU, that's going to slow the evolution of newer and better standards. And we've already discussed how USB-C is itself a new standard that's superior to the old USB micro, which was the one that was previously endorsed by the Commission. Something that Apple points out in, in a, a report it submitted to the European Commission is that the, the Commission d- defines two specific variants of USB-C in, in, in its proposal. We don't need to get into exactly what those variants are, but um, they have already been replaced by, by newer standards that, that have greater power capabilities. So that's been the main pushback from industry. It's been Apple for obvious reasons. They, they have their own interest to defend. But the, the argument is, is broader than that. It's, it's where will the next standard come from if the law holds us to USB-C? So this proposal has now made its way to the European Parliament where it's been discussed. Uh, what are lawmakers there saying? Right, so... For listeners who don't know, the way laws get made in the EU is after the Commission comes up with its proposal, you have elected uh, MPs in the European Parliament and national ministers in the Council of the EU separately come up with their own versions of the law and then they have to argue over a final version. Now, the Council has stayed relatively close to what the Commission's proposed, but in the Parliament it looks like they're going to come up with something much broader. So the legislation's being steered through the European Parliament by a Maltese Labour legislator called Alex Adjus Saliba. Uh, he he has to or he, he has drafted a report based on discussions with colleagues that recommends broadening out this legislation in, in two key ways. First, he wants to expand the variety of devices that are covered. So it would add laptops, uh, earbuds, those are small headphones, uh, keyboards, shavers, fitness trackers, smartwatches, and all all kinds of other things. He also wants to regulate other charging methods, particularly wireless charging. Um, So this would greatly expand the scope of the legislation. It could complicate things. For one thing, it, it could affect charging methods that are not easily standardized because they're designed around the product. So an obvious example would be charging cases for earbuds. Um, it's, it's not clear whether or not this is intentional, but the 
text is written gives the impression that Apple and Bose and, and Sennheiser would have to have interoperable charging cases for their earbuds, which at first glance doesn't seem all that realistic. The, what is clear is that the intention is to regulate wireless charging, but wireless charging, while there are technical standards, like I don't know if, if they're QI chargers or Qi chargers, I'm not sure how they're meant to be pronounced, are you know a very common commonly used standard for wireless charging of many devices. But uh, one of the issues with wireless charging is, of course, the shape. So some listeners may be familiar with the kind of flat panel wireless chargers that are often used for smartphones and tablets. You literally just plonk your phone down on top um, and they tend to work across a variety of different brands of smartphones. But if you think about some devices, you often have wireless charging that's a bit more tailored to the product. So I've got this electric toothbrush which has wireless charging and there's this little nub that, that sort of slots into the bottom of the toothbrush. And you know you, you could you could go beyond that and also look at some fitness trackers and smartwatches that have charging cradles or, or charging clasps that are built around the product. What we're probably going to see, uh, as as Mr. Mr. Saliba's report is discussed in the European Parliament, is a lot of quite tedious haggling over just how much they can standardise. Um, and no doubt we'll see a great deal of lobbying on this too. Nicholas, as long as my electric toothbrush doesn't lose power when I'm visiting the EU, I'll be happy. But it's been great talking to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, James. Nicholas Wallace is an MLEX reporter working out of our Brussels office. And if the ongoing debate about charges is your cup of tea, Nicholas has written a fine piece of analysis that should tick all of your boxes. You can find it at mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com. Just click on the appropriately named News Hub tab for all of the latest reporting and analysis from the MLEX team. And subscribers, of course, have access to the full portfolio of coverage of the phone charges issue going all the way back to... 2009. Goodness me, doesn't time fly? This is where I have to bid you farewell, but with the legally enforceable undertaking to be back in your feed next Friday at more or less the same time. I hope you can join me then. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. I'll see you again soon. Bye for now. <laughs>